Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com, on which we talk to high achievers about their goals. On this episode, we are throwing it back to the Sweatworking Summit, and I am Gina Anderson-Cohen, founder and CEO of A Sweat Life. I had the opportunity to moderate a session that was one part panel and one part pitch competition that brought in Nadia Okamoto uh, for both a judge position and a keynote talk that evening. And I have to tell you, everyone was electrified and inspired by her talk. Here's why. (laughs) Nadia is a ripe age of 22, and she is already on her third enterprise. She started her first social enterprise business, a nonprofit called Period Inc., uh, in 2014 when she was in high school. Uh, She really found this sort of menstruation poverty and period poverty across the world to be something that just set her ablaze. You'll hear that passion in her speech. Um, And since then, she's also started a Gen Z marketing firm. She's published a book. She's run for public office. And now she is on to her latest enterprise called August. August is also operating in the period space. It's something that she cares very deeply about. And you'll hear more about that within the talk too. She's raw. She's real. She shares the good, the bad, the trauma, and everything in between. You'll hear all of that in this episode of We Got Goals. So here is Nadia. Girl, I said I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. Don't be upset when I'm not around. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here and to see you. Um, I have been looking forward to this all week. It's been kind of a crazy week of um, work. And also, I feel like just reckoning with what 2021 is also. I've been feeling just really thankful this week um, because I'm in New York City and I am just watching what's happening in Texas right now. And for any of you in Texas, um, I see Kelly and Dallas like sending you so much love and I hope you and your family and loved ones are safe. Um, But yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I know that Tina said that I have my stuff together, but um, I definitely don't feel like that all the time. And I'm just really, really honored to be here to join all of you and just share a little bit about my wellness journey, entrepreneurship, and also just my search to continue learning and having self-accountability as we all have this world cultural reckoning to keep pushing for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, So I'll start with a little bit of background. Um, I'm Nadia. I am 23. I just turned 23. um, And I'm in in my last semester at Harvard College. Um, My work has been uh, in the period space. I'm rather obsessed with menstruation. And um, I'm pretty sure that the majority of people on this call maybe have personal experiences with menstruation as well. Um, But I know it's not the most common thing to be so excited about and obsessed with, and I am. And uh, the reason for that is, you know, when I was 16 years old and I had been menstruating for about four years by that time, I had never thought about really what it's like for other people to get their period. And to and from school, I started to get into conversations with homeless women I was meeting and was really curious about their living situation and started asking them things like, what is the most challenging thing about your living situation? How did you get here? And uh, I accidentally stumbled upon these stories of their using things like toilet paper, socks, brown paper, grocery bags, and cardboard to take care of their periods when they couldn't afford access to period products. And it just sort of lit this fire in me of feeling 
angry in this like what the fuck sort of attitude of like how is this still an issue in 2021 or no in 2014 2021 now um got completely obsessed with it started doing google like google searches just trying to learn more about period poverty learning about the global consequences of period poverty and um you know the aspects of how it is a leading cause of absenteeism for girls in school it's you know often in in many countries the single event that leads to female gender mutilation or uh, um, social isolation practice um, or even child marriage. And so it's this kind of cultural moment because menarche, your first period, is very much like the biological time when, you know, a body can now bear children, right? Um, And then also learning about period poverty in the U.S., learning that in 2014, 40 states at the time had the tampon tax, which is a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine and Viagra were considered essential goods. That number 40 is now down to 30. But now in 2021, still the majority of our states have this tax on period products considering menstrual hygiene a luxury and not a necessity. And it just became something that I was so fired up about. And you can hear it now, like I get so fired up about it. And I've been talking about this nonstop for six years. And it just sort of sparked this thing in me of like, why isn't this solved? Why aren't people talking about it? I started Googling and trying to find any organization that I could volunteer with, and there were none in the US. So I decided to start one. Um, And with a few friends of mine, we just started getting together and like putting period product packages together, trying to distribute them to people in need, started seeing more of a a demand. So started just getting period products from companies, getting products from donors and drives, and then distributing them to shelters and nonprofit organizations to then distribute out to their local communities in need and just use social media like as the free tool that we had um, to just take action. And Fast forward about six months, we became a national organization when we created a chapter network by writing everything we did in our community and saying, do this in yours. Um, And uh, over the last six years, I led the organization until last January. And by the time I left, period, the menstrual movement, repping today, actually completely accidentally, um, uh, we had distributed over 20 million units of period products to people in need and had registered close to a thousand campus chapters at universities and high schools in all 50 states and 50 other countries. Um, And, you know, it was primarily me. I founded it when I was 16 with my co-founder, who was a non-menstruating cis guy in my math class, who was just really organized and I needed an operations director. Um, and you know, I think my mentality around entrepreneurship from a really young age was like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I don't really think anybody does. So we're going to go for it anyways. And, you know, I've made so many mistakes on the way. If I could go back and do it again, there are so many things I would do differently. Um, but it's just been a really, really beautiful journey of continuing, continuing to, step into my passion and as it's turned into a profession, watch a nonprofit grow to the point where I could hand the reins over to someone else who had worked in nonprofit executive leadership for decades. Um, And so that's kind of what I was mainly focusing on. Um, But when I was 18, I started school at Harvard. Uh, When I was 19, I decided to run for office and very accidentally became the youngest Asian American to run and fell into this world of political organizing, um, specifically around advocating for representation for Asian Americans. Americans. Um, And from 
companies watching how I was mobilizing through period and my uh, political campaign, I started getting reached out to saying, how are you mobilizing so many young people with no budget and like no career qualifications? And so I started showing up to these companies or campaigns and saying, well, here's what you're doing wrong. And here's what I think you need to understand about Gen Z from what at least I know of my peers. And if I'm not the right person to talk to, let me introduce you to my friends. Um, and so accidentally fell into Gen Z marketing. So um, a couple of years ago, Ago, I joined forces with my friend um, to uh, relaunch Juve Consulting, which is a Gen Z marketing agency. Uh, I was the oldest person at the company until they recently hired like a 24-year-old CFO and more recently like an older COO. Um, but we started as a bunch of teenagers who were going into these huge companies and saying like, you know, you're all talking about digital marketing and trying to reach young people. Well, how are you supposed to affect any group of people without those people represented at the table where that strategy is being created, right? And a lot of that was the mentality that I had from the nonprofit world, which is how are you trying to serve a community of people without actually asking what they need and where their gaps are? Um, and so we hustled and grew that. And um, to date, uh, you know, now the company has a team of 50, um, several hundred consultants um, in their age 13 to 22. Um, it now works with over 50 Fortune 500 companies, um, hit seven figures my first year there. Um, and it's just been a really, really wild ride of, you know, I, as chief brand officer, really led a lot of the brand messaging and thinking through a lot of the influencer marketing and thinking about in this world where we're surrounded by these social platforms where anybody can pick it up at their fingertips if they have the privilege of having a smartphone and internet, right? And how accessible it became to just carve our, our, out our own paths and connect with each other online, right? Like as much as social media has been so harmful to my mental health in many ways, it's also been such a beautiful way to connect with people and build movements when you might not have the traditional qualifications, right? Like we're meeting here all today, um, like 50 of us here, and I know that we'll be able to follow up and uh, connect more offline, and that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, I was kind of in the period space for quite a while, and I'll say that on the notion of wellness and this uh, aspect of staying active, to me, that's that has been my biggest challenge and also my saving grace. Um, when I started my nonprofit, I was in a really dark place as a 16-year-old um, family experiencing housing instability and financial instability at the time, um, coming to terms with the fact that I grew up with sex abuse like every day with my dad and um, was just kind of starting to put an end to that relationship um, and was stuck in my first uh, romantic relationships with men who were abusive because that's what I that's what I accepted and had learned to think was normal and um, I think I was in a place before I started my advocacy where I really I had really accepted like this is what I deserve because my worth is defined by my body and how it can be used uh, by others even against my will and. I think I had lost any hope that my worth came from my voice, my intelligence. And um, when I started advocacy and I really started a nonprofit by Googling, like, what is a nonprofit? And then talking to anyone who would listen, like talking at the staff meetings of like the Jiffy Lube auto store, the banks, the Fidelity's insurance and saying, hey, like, give me one dollar. I want to go buy period products. 
Um, but I think that it was really those moments at the beginning where I would go into these rooms, people never heard of menstruation talked about in the workplace. And it was a room of like five people. Right. And I would say, this is what I'm doing. You either menstruate or you come from someone who menstruates and you're here because of menstruation and your sister, your daughter, like menstruate. And this is something we need to talk about. And it was really seeing that ability to transition someone's mindset of how they think about something so stigmatized and something that's been stigmatized since the beginning of our human civilization. Fun fact, the word taboo, meaning something you do not talk about or touch in any sort of conversational way, comes from the Polynesian root word tapua, which means menstruation, right? So it's really embedded into our culture, embedded into the beginnings of all of our religious texts. And I think for me, it was really this understanding that I can go in and talk to someone about periods and they will think I'm crazy or like a cute girl who cares about an issue at the beginning. And by the time I leave, I can get them to be a period warrior with it with me and really excited about periods. And it really was my experience of like, wow, I, I can do something. And maybe my worth isn't from my body. My worth is from my voice and how I can use it to mobilize others. Where this gets tricky is that's absolutely addicting when you get a sense of that, right? I became fascinated with this and how much can I push this to say how many people we can mobilize? And it was always like, okay, I have people at my school. I have people in Oregon. Now we have people in every state. Now we have people in other countries. And now we have like tens of thousands of people. And now we're creating like global days where we have rallies in every state. Um, and I completely forgot about self-care. Uh, in 2018, I published my first book, Period Power, uh, with my dream publisher, Simon & Schuster, and started traveling once or twice a day, like going to school on Mondays for half a day and then leaving, playing, playing four red eyes in a row like many times last year. And um, I think I was just kind of going for it, right? I believe so much in this cause. And at the same time, it was a way that I was able to run away a lot from my trauma and just say, I don't want to think about that right now. And, you know, I think it really caught up to me uh, in the last year. And I don't think I necessarily... I don't think I burned out physically, but I burned out emotionally in the sense of, I think I lost who Nadia was as I really became like a brand or some sort of public figure. And I think it's why we see this mental health struggle um, today with social media and Gen Z, because at the age of 10, 80% of teenagers are curating personal brands without knowing what a personal brand is, but making every small decision to figure out what their aesthetic is, the language that they use, the username, the hashtags, like everything about curating a brand and knowing that there is this personal side of you but you're really leaning and living into that experience of the personal brands. And I say this not to scare about social media, because as you've heard, social media is my career is what has made a lot of my advocacy possible. Um, but it's also something that I think I really grapple with. Um, and as a survivor, uh, physical activity is a huge part of how I was able to um, survive through a lot of the mental health side of things, because it was my way of being able to work out once a day, no matter where I was, um, and just be able to come into my body. And um, this became even more of a thing 
in the last couple of years. Um, and so kind of on the topic of uh, continuing my advocacy and equity and inclusion, um, in 2019, before I left the organization, I decided to step away from the nonprofit world because I really felt like I could do more if I were to actually start living out my mission of reimagining period care and period culture by starting a lifestyle period brand that could reimagine period care and disrupt the harmful culture that I think has been perpetuated by brands um, for the last century. Um, and so last January, I stepped away from my nonprofit. I stepped away from the consulting company and started raising a seed round that we're about to close next week. Raising capital has been exhausting, but so thrilling. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I'm now focused on August, which is a lifestyle period brand built by a community of hundreds of Gen Zers. And again, social media was a huge part of how we brought those Gen Zers together. It's a huge part of how we've been able to you know launch with a 150,000 followers um, with no paid media because we were talking about periods, something that people are still um, eager and excited to talk about because it like feels rare. Um, and on equity and inclusion, I think, you know, this is a huge part of how I, I always wanted to prioritize how I led, right? As an Asian American growing up in Portland, Oregon, the whitest major city in the United States, um, and my mom does a lot of DEI work, like it was always at the forefront of my mind, like, why do we do the work, right? Who are you serving and how do you keep them in the front of your mind um, in everything that you do? How do you involve them in the strategizing process? And I think naturally when you work in the uh, realm of wanting to serve unmet needs um, for people experiencing financial instability, um, equity and inclusion is really important. I also think that it's something that I really learned early on in my career when it comes to gender inclusivity, um, where we recognize that not everybody who menstruates identifies as a woman, but people might also identify as trans men or gender nonconforming and still experience menstruation, um, given that they were assigned female at birth. Um, and so using more inclusive language all the way to then starting to work with bigger companies and going to them and saying, hey, you're about to see the Gen Z entering the workforce. Generation Z's um, uh, nickname is the genderless generation because in the U.S., less than 50% of Gen Z identifies totally heterosexual or cisgender. So how are you going to make your space a more welcoming and inclusive um, environment? And we would really go in and say, even from the standpoint of racial identities, religious identities, um, how do you really make sure that you're not only paying attention to diversity, but also inclusion? And there's a very stark difference between the two. Diversity is like, like I use the analogy of like a dance party, right? Diversity is inviting different people to the table or different people to the dance, right? Filling the room with people who look different, who speak differently. Inclusivity is asking those people to dance and bringing them up on stage and letting them DJ. And so it really is about pushing, you know, not only having a diverse set of people in the workforce or in communities, um, but also really making sure that people are feeling included and that there is this equitable lens that how do you create um, inclusive spaces as well. And that's something that we are continuing to really try and focus on, um, even as we build at August and as we've been bringing on new people to our team. Um, lastly, I want to end by just sharing that I think that as the whole world has dealt with this, you know, overdue cultural reckoning with the need for focus on uh, equity and inclusion, but also um, demanding racial justice uh, in the last year, especially, 
Um, I think it's been a big year for all of us to also be really uh, self-critical and also look internally, right? Being in quarantine and starting to hear feedback in these conversations. And I'll be completely honest, regardless of what I was painted as, as an activist or, you know, leader in the movement, like, I have never felt like an expert and I have, um, I don't think it was my ever my goal to really try to take up space and be like, listen to me about equity and inclusion. But I recognize that, uh, you know, in the last year, I've done so much learning and have um, really had opportunities to be held accountable by others and people I love around me, whether it be my family or otherwise, to always take moments to check in and be like, where can I improve on this, right? Where is my place as an Asian American to try and fight for Black and Brown communities or fight with Black and Brown communities, right? And what do I not know about my own privilege or my own history in this country that will make me better? more able to advocate in an equitable lens, right? For me, I've changed my whole academic focus at Harvard to focus on the sociology of Asian America because I realized, and or not realized, but I learned that um, the model minority myth was rooted in anti-Blackness and created by white-owned media coming out of times when, um, you know, America was enforcing legislation like the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that is something that I never learned in school. And even in the public eye, talking about racial justice, I did not like really push myself or know was something that I needed to understand. And so I want to share, like, as we talk about equity and inclusion, I think we also have to be ready and excited to have those really hard conversations with ourselves and seek out those answers and do the work to really continue to try and do that learning. And I think that that's something I um, continue to try to push myself to do every single day. And it's really hard. And um, it's taken a lot of, I think, healing even from past PTSD to really give myself into that work. Um, To be completely honest, I don't have all my stuff together. I'm still learning um, how to balance everything. I spent six weeks in a residential rehab place for um, PTSD and uh, depression last summer. Um, And it was the first time I had really taken a break. And while I was there, I read a book a day on capitalism and restructured the whole way we were going to raise capital and how we were going to exist with a focus on sustainability and impact in a way that was really genuine and attached to real, really making change. Um, And so I just wanted to share that as like, you know, I'm proud of, of the work that I've done. And I also think that what the last couple of years has taught me is that, you know, it's okay to be a work in progress and it's okay to feel sad. Sometimes it's okay to wake up in the mornings and feel like we don't really know what we're doing because guess what? That's what community is for. And that's what having mentors and advisors is for and having um, friends and loved ones is for. And um, I think that being able to let myself know I'm getting emotional, let, let myself know that um, it's okay to be a work in progress. And it's also okay to not know the answers and it's okay to to stand up and recognize I fucked up or I'm still learning or this is a mistake that I need to learn from and this is something I want to be accountable for. Um, And so I just invite all of you to give yourself that permission to look within yourself, check in with yourself, forgive yourself, um, and also uh, be just excited to learn and come into these hard conversations. Um, So with that, I am so, so excited to hear from the incredible entrepreneurs here today because there's so much we can all learn from each other. 
Nadia, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your story. And thank you so much for your openness. I think so many of, I know so many of us identify so much with all of the things you say. Um, and I just want to express our gratitude. Yeah, I said I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. So don't be upset when I'm not around. Just know I'll be back, so no need to frown. This has been another episode of We Got Goals and a SweatLife.com production. Thanks to Nadia Okamoto for being a guest both at the Sweatworking Summit and on the podcast. Thanks to everyone who was present to vote on the pitch competition. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing, Ryan Barayuga for creating the video version of the podcast, and thanks to all of you for listening. <laughs>